Blog Talk Radio. Well, good evening. It is Tuesday, July 1st at 6 p.m., and I'm Allison Wu, Charlotte Weekly and Union County Weekly's book club editor for Speaking Volumes. Welcome to our inaugural show. Tonight we are very lucky and pleased to have best-selling author Lisa C. Lisa is the author, the New York Times best-selling author of Snowflower and the Secret Fan, and also the, her latest is Peony in Love, which was our book club selection for best pick in June. So if you have questions for Lisa, you can call in to our New York studios at 347-539-5852. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled it's the first one. You are the first guest. A lot goes into being the first guest, so thanks for carrying that great responsibility. Well, thank you for having me. Well, let's talk a little bit about Peony and Love. Our book club met and absolutely adored the book. Wonder, let's start at the beginning. I understand you were on assignment for Vogue and actually came across a little bit of history that became part of what Peony and Love is really based on. Right. You know, uh, I was asked by Vogue magazine to write an article about about the opera, the Peony Pavilion, that Lincoln Center was mounting in the mm-hmm. year 2000 in New York. Mm-hmm. And this was the first time that the entire opera, all 55 scenes, all 25 hours, was going to be mounted in about 200 years. Mm-hmm. And when the Chinese government heard that it was going to be the full uncut opera, they wouldn't let the sets out, they wouldn't let the costumes out, they wouldn't let the singers out. The whole thing was delayed for a couple of years. But finally, it was put on in 2000. And as I was doing the research about the opera, mm-hmm. I kept coming across what were called lovesick maidens, these young girls who loved the opera in the mid-17th century. They loved mm-hmm. the opera, but they were never allowed to see it. They could only read it. And when they read it, they would catch cases of lovesickness, like the main character in the opera, mm-hmm. and then waste away and die. The belief was that the words of this opera and the emotions in this opera were so powerful that they would cause these girls to die. <clears throat> and, of course, as they were dying, a lot of them wrote poems and stories which were then published after their deaths. So Peony and Love is based on the true story of three of those lovesick maidens who together wrote the first book of its kind to have been written and published anywhere in the world by women. I think that's just an incredible, incredible story. And as you go through the, you know, what has happened, what happened to them, whether it was the foot binding or whether it was how they were, you know, treated, whether you're an inside girl or an outside girl, the story is really remarkable. How am I, It looks like there was a ton of research that would have to go into something like this. Could you kind of walk us through how much research you did and what your process was? Well, I am a research fanatic. I have to admit that. Uh-huh. I just love to do research, and I do it all myself. And some of it I do on the Internet, just like anybody who's writing a paper for school. I also I, I live very close to UCLA in Los Angeles, and I, I spend a lot of time at the research library. Mm-hmm. And then I also go to China, and for this book, I certainly went to every single place that I wrote about. To me, it's so important to see these places in person. You know, it's one thing to read about something like an unmarried girl's pavilion, but it's quite another, and and even to read about its purpose, that this was the one place that a girl in a 
large compound home. She could she could go into this pavilion that was built up on, a little higher on some dirt or rocks, and this would give her just enough elevation that she could see who was coming in to the compound, who was leaving. She could see but not be seen. Absolutely. It might be the only way that she would ever see men until she got married. But to actually go and stand in those lookout pavilions, you really get a sense, or at least I did, of how closed off these girls were and that for most of them, this was as much of the world as they would see was what they could see inside the compound. Only a few of them were built just high enough so that these young girls could just peek over the exterior wall and see the outside world. As I said, for most of these girls, this is as much of the world as they would ever see in their lifetimes because they would be raised, born and raised in their father's home, and then they would go to their husband's home in a covered sedan chair so they wouldn't even see the world that way. And then once they got to their husband's homes, they'd be closed inside that compound until they died. So, again, it's one thing to read about something like that, but a very different thing to go and experience it and, and to really get a sense of how that would have felt. Absolutely. Well, our switchboard is lighting up, so we're going to take a question from a caller. Hello, and welcome to our show. Can you tell us your name and your question? Hello? Okay, well, that's not working. We're going to take our next caller. Okay. One moment. Hello, welcome to the show. Can you give us your name and your question, please? This is Lena. Hi, Lena. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Lena. I love your book. I really, really enjoyed it. And um, I wanted to um, ask you a question, a burning question, um, whether it was intentional symbolism that you, um, that you, when you were writing, that Peony's mother walked around with locks in, in her pocket. To, was it to represent how women were repressed in that time? I think it's partly to represent how women were repressed, but how she in particular had closed herself off. You mean Peony's mother? Yes, Peony's yes. mother. And that okay. she, she had closed herself off and that she was so afraid of everything that she carried those locks, that thinking that she could you know, lock up things in the house to protect them, but most important, mm. protect her own daughter. And then wow. you know, later she does throw those locks away, and she's kind of freed by that. Wow. Now, did you set out to create it that way, or did it just happen? About the locks? The, the, about the locks, the whole <laughs> symbolic nature of the locks. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever seen Chinese locks, but they're, you know, they're very different than what we think of. They're more like padlocks I suppose but they have these ah. interesting keys to them and they're actually very beautiful I didn't get into that of course but mm-hmm. I I think that there was something that I had read a poem or something from that time period that talked about a woman with with locks in her gowns mm-hmm. in, in the folds of her gowns and and that sort of stuck with me and then as ah. I thought about Peony's mother to me it made a lot of sense um, for her to have those, just for her personally, but also so that she could lock up her daughter. 
So, yes, I I was thinking about that from the very beginning. Sometimes you're right. Sometimes things sort of evolve and change, but I had the idea of the locks for Mm Peter's mother from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Wow, that was great. That was really... um... <laughs> that really uh, shook me when I when I read that. I, I thought it was so effective. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Lena, for calling. We actually have another caller. Caller, can you give us your name, please, also, and your question, Felisa? Hello, caller. Okay, seems like we're having a little bit of technical difficulty. Again, if you're listening and have a question for Lisa C., you can call into our New York studios. The number is 347-539-5852. So, Lisa, tell us a little bit about when you – we always hear from authors about, you know, kind of falling in love with one character from the book. Was there one particular character whose story you, you were really mesmerized by? Well, I have to say that the character that I kind—I think I love the most is Peony's grandmother. Mm. You know, she's an old woman. Well, she's a ghost. Um, but she has a very particular kind of attitude. Um, she's pretty feisty. She's wrong a lot of the time. She's willing to admit she's wrong kind of grudgingly. But actually... There's a version of Peony's grandmother has appeared in every single book that I've written. Really? And I, she's very much based on my grandmother and my great aunt and these aunts that I grew, Chinese aunties that I grew up with as a mm-hmm. little girl. And, of course, they're all gone now. And so writing this particular kind of character, whether she was the neighborhood committee director in my mysteries, in, in Snowflower and the Secret Fan, she was Madame Wong, the matchmaker, and now um, in Peony and Love, Peony's grandmother. And to me, I don't think I intended it. It was only as I was editing Peony and Love that I finally realized, oh, I know this character. I know who this is. I mm. just know who it is. And one of the wonderful things about writing is that it is a way for me to spend time with these people who meant so much to me, who made me who I am, even though they're gone now. Mm, That is very beautiful. Okay, we're going to take another call. This is a caller from Charlotte. Caller, will you tell us your name and give us your question? Okay, I think this is actually the same caller. We're having some technical issues on their part of the phone. Hold on, we'll take another caller. Caller, hi, you are on the air. Hello, you are on the air. Do you have a question for Lisa? No, okay. We are having, I guess, some issues with um, some sound issues because we are seeing the callers come in and uh, they're not able to ask their questions. Lisa, I have a question for you. You talked about your grandmother being, you know, and your auntie really being like the person who is Peony's grandmother. She had such an interesting story and her whole thing of, you know, how she was revered by her family as being this wonderful woman, yet as a ghost you really heard the reality of her life where she did not willingly give up her life. Was there a part of that that you realized was really kind of part of women's sacrifice, that women have always been sacrificing? Yes, but I also 
really had wanted to find a per- first-person uh, narrative of what had happened during the so-called cataclysm when Yangzhou was, there was that huge massacre with 80,000 people killed in four days. And I kept looking and looking and looking. That's like looking for a needle in a haystack. But finally, I did find a book of first-person accounts of what had happened during that 30 years of, of upheaval. And in there was this one essay written by a man who survived that four days. And he talked about how he had his father and his mother and the concubines and his sons and their wives and their children, all these people who who had to, you know, one night they spent the night up on the roof and and in the pouring rain, and then there's, you know, hiding under camels' bellies, and and that he came to this point where they knew that they were cornered, that they knew they were going to be caught by the Manchus, and he said to his wife, my mouth wants to go on eating for a few more years. You know what you need to do. Mm. And so, in fact, she did sacrifice herself. Her husband, her father-in-law, all the sons hid in a pile of hay. She got on top, put a little bit of hay on top of herself. The Manchus came in. They raped her. They killed her. They Mm. threw her dead body on top of this pile of hay. And all of the men in her family stayed under her body all night um, until it was safe. Mm -hmm. So I kept thinking about this true story. And I kept thinking about what that man had said to his wife. Mm -hmm. You know, my mouth wants to go on eating for a few more years. You know what you need to do. And I thought about it, and I thought about it. And the more I thought about it, the more kind of angry I got. Sure. And so I decided that I would write that story, this true story of what happened to this family but from a woman's perspective, from her perspective, and then how that would have had a ripple-down effect in her family, not just to her, of course, because she was dead, but to the other women who had survived it, who saw the way she had martyred herself, mm-hmm. and then later to the generations who came after, including Peony, who was raised believing that her mother or grandmother was a martyr. So I... I was thinking about the ways that women have sacrificed themselves, but also the ways in which women are sacrificed. Absolutely, in all fashions. Okay, we're going to see if we can take another caller. Caller, welcome to the show. Do you please tell us your name and your question for Lisa? Hi, Allison, this is Judith. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you now. Oh, Thank wonderful. you so much for calling in. <laughs> oh, I'm thrilled to be online. Hello, Lisa. I'm Hi. so honored to have you online. This is really quite exciting. Um, I just wanted to state that I appreciated the sharpness or the few chapters that were dedicated to um, Peony's life before she dies and then the length of the chapters afterwards, which really brought to mind, you know, we're here on Earth a shorter time than eternity. And it just all seemed to fall into place. Thank you. Well, thank you. What a wonderful comment. That's so true, too. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Uh, I I really was very intrigued by looking at the Chinese version of the afterlife, you know, which is so different than our Western idea of what happens to us after we die. mm -hmm. And I know that some people really don't like that. You know, they have their own beliefs and they don't really like to 
consider other ways of looking at things. But I actually think that's one of the wonderful things about books is that you can explore other ideas and other ways of thinking that maybe we wouldn't be exposed to otherwise. Right, and there's no one that really comes back to tell us what it's like. No, exactly. No one really comes back to tell us what it's like. (laughs) That'll be a first. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Thank you for reading the book. Sure. Thanks, Jennifer, for calling in. And Lisa, question to you, because, you know, my own father is Chinese. He was born in Canton. So I, my mother is Eurasian. So I grew up watching a lot of the Chinese operas and a lot of the, you know, reading about the myths that have to do with the afterlife. And there's a very big preoccupation with making sure that your ancestors are honored. Could you talk a little bit about what it was like, you know, in your own home and what, what was your experience like with dealing with the afterlife? How much of it did you know? How much of it did you have to research for the book? Well, first of all, my family came from the same area that your family, just around uh, Canton, outside of Canton, a small village, but way back before the, um, my great-great-grandfather came during the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. Right. We, I think probably like your family, like many Chinese-American families, there are certain traditions that are practiced or done each year at different holiday times that we do, especially the younger generation, that we do, but we may not really understand what they mean or what the deeper significance is. And and I think of that a little bit like um, something like, Christmas. You know, some mm-hmm. people really look at Christmas as a very religious holiday, and some people just think, I like to have a Christmas tree and, and buy a bunch of presents. They're, they don't sure. really think about the religious aspects. One of the things that's been really wonderful for me in writing these books is to sort of look at these traditions that we've had in my own family, whether it's for one month's birthday parties or funerals or Chinese New Year and to sort of understand what some of what's behind some of those traditions. Mm-hmm. And so Chinese New Year is something that's celebrated around the world. It's celebrated often in elementary school classes around the country, you know, as part of multiculturalism. Right. And yet I don't think people understand that really ancestor worship and caring for the ancestors, all those people who've left before us, that that's really at the heart of Chinese New Year, Mm -hmm. that everything that you're doing is to thank your ancestors, to clothe and feed and house them, to treat them well because they have in the afterlife all the same needs, wants, and desires that they had in life. So they need to have food, and they need to have clothes. And these days, they need to have things like cell phones and mm-hmm. iPods. And, and so these things are given as offerings, whether it's real food or things like an iPod or a cell phone that's made out of paper and then burned so that it will travel to the afterworld for your ancestors to use. Um, and in return for all of that, If they're happy with what they've received, they're going to reward the family in the coming year with prosperity and good luck and healthy children and a good job. And, of course, if they aren't very happy, 
there's going to be some trouble coming. Yeah, <laughs> there is definitely. And poor Peony, she didn't get her dot, her tablet dotted, and so she is roaming in the afterlife right. continually, and she has this rapacious need for her life to really, you know, get settled. And so she works through these subsequent wives who kind of come along, that she kind of helps to to bring happiness to her uh, intended. And there's so much longing, and this is some part of the discussion that we had during our book club. There's so much longing, there's so much, you know, wanting. Uh, what were you going for? What were you trying to really kind of bring about and discuss when you see Peony's, you know, very long 200-page, you know, life in the afterlife? What were you trying to get at? What were you hoping to really convey? Well, a couple of things. First, I really wanted to look at all of the different aspects of love. You know, it's called peony and love. For mm-hmm. And, I, you know, sort of that young, girlish, romantic love, uh, erotic love, but how love changes over time, um, you know, how different it is from when you're you first, the first time you're infatuated with someone when you're 15 and how different that is from when you get married and how different that is from when you're married for 7 or 25 or 50 years and how love does change and evolve and and sort of grows from that infatuation to deep heart love. But I also wanted to look at other aspects of love, gratitude love, pity love, respectful love, Mm. as well as, and to me this is most important in the book, mother love. So, you know, there is a plot that sort of goes along about Peony and the three wives and is she ever going to be able to get back to Wu Ren in some meaningful way. But to me, the heart of the story is really about Peony and her mother and her grandmother mm-hmm. and this love that they share from grandmother to daughter to granddaughter and how important that is for us as women, how important... Um, this love is that gets passed down, how it defines us, how it makes us who we are. And then I guess the other aspect of, of being in the afterworld was uh, or is the f- fact that I'm, I'm really very intrigued by this Chinese idea that your emotions travel with you to the afterlife, you know, mm-hmm. that they go with you, that all of the things that you felt, whether it was hate or jealousy or envy, but most particularly love, mm-hmm. that that travels with you. And so often we think of people being left behind in life and how they're the ones who are left mourning and feeling love and sometimes anger for the people who've, who've left. Why wouldn't it be true that the person who goes to the afterworld, that they wouldn't have those things? So I really was very interested in that. And then finally, I wanted to see, I I just was, I guess, personally sort of intrigued by the idea that even though Peony dies Mm -hmm. as a young girl, 16 years old, that through the course of the story, even though a lot of time goes by, and even though her body remains the same forever 16, mm-hmm. that in fact she does grow up and she does learn and she does experience everything that a woman 
should hope to experience or would hope to experience in her life, love, having a child, um, what that kind of love means and what those kinds of sacrifices mean, and all of that so that she does, again, learn and experience life as though she were living. Wow, really illuminating stuff. And if you have a question... Just, you know, one last thing, what it means to be human. That really uh-huh. it's only in death that she understands what it means to be human. And isn't that something that we're all, well, even if we aren't in search of it, we should be in search of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what it means to be human for ourselves, you know, and how do we find our humanity? Absolutely, and so interesting that she does that, you know, in death. Um, and if you have a question for Lisa, you can call into our New York studios at three four seven five three nine five eight five two. You can also log on to our webpage at blogtalkradio.com slash speaking volumes and send me an instant message. Lisa, you said so many interesting things there, just talking about the whole aspect of motherly love. That scene where her mom binds the foot of her cousin because her aunt is too, as they described in the book, too weak to do it, you know, harshly. That scene was just riveting and just the description. I mean, people in the book club were just mesmerized by the description of the foot. I wonder what kind of reaction you've received from American audiences about the foot binding because obviously everyone has different standards of beauty and that existed in that specific time. What kind of reaction have you had currently, and what did you learn about foot binding that kind of may have changed maybe your idea about what it was going into writing the book? Well, actually, I want to say two things about it. The first is when I was talking about mother love. To me, foot binding is really the supreme example of mother love. Now, Mm -hmm. mother love is a written character in Chinese that's composed of two elements. One part means love. The other part means pain that this is a mother's love. And when I wrote Snowflower and the Secret Fan, that also has a scene about foot binding, and it's very much from the little girl's point of view, and I could really see a daughter looking at her mother who's going to bind her feet and think, oh, yes, mother love, love and pain. Mm. But even after I wrote that, I just kept thinking, how could a mother do this to her daughter? How could she do it? And yet, as I said, this was the supreme example of mother love. This was the one thing a mother could do for her daughter to possibly give her a better chance at life. And yet think of the pain that a mother would go through to bind her daughter's feet. Mm -hmm. And so I did want to come back and and look at mother's love um, from a, a mother's perspective. And, and show what that would feel like from a mother's perspective and, and how Peony's aunt is too weak. Peony's mm-hmm. mother can do it. She doesn't like to do it. And then later, of course, Peony takes those lessons that she learned and right. is able to help bind Yi's feet, the third wife's feet. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to look at that. And then you asked about the reaction. I think people for the most part, are really shocked by foot binding. How could they not be? I mean, this is a process that takes a little girl's foot and breaks the toes, breaks the midfoot. The goal is for the toes of the feet to come back and meet the heel of the foot so that all that a little girl and later as a woman is left to walk on is basically her big toe. Mm-hmm. This is a 
it's shocking. And we so often people say, well, we have nothing like that today. You know, yes, in other parts of the world, there's, you know, in Africa, there's female genital cutting. Right. And, and in the Middle East, women are hidden under burqas, not a physical thing the same way, but, you know, kind of this restriction. And then I always try to point out, well, we have cosmetic surgery. Absolutely. Particular breast enhancement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you know that the number one age for breast enhancement in the United States is now 17 years old? Shocking. It's the number one age. And who gives that present? You know, the, to me, this is very much like foot binding. Who gives this as a gift? The mother. Mm-hmm. Why does she give it as a gift? For the exact same reasons that mothers bound their daughter's feet, so that her daughter can hopefully marry into a better situation, mm-hmm. have a better life, makes her more marriageable. And so in so many ways we have changed, and yet in so many ways we're still very much the same. Absolutely. It was so interesting. I've been carrying the book around uh, for the last month, and my father, in in our drive up to New York, saw the book, and he said, uh, he asked me what the book is about, and I told him, and he started telling me about his grandmother and how her feet were bound. And the whole story about, you know, how she was dedicated to a life of arts and painting. And, you know, these are stories I had, we had, my brother and I had never heard before. And it was just fascinating. And um, it, it is incredible how, you know, there are different standards of beauty. And from his perspective, and my father is in his 70s, you know, this was something that was really, the women who had their feet bound were, you know, kind of the revered women, mm-hmm. the classical women. So he was surprised that, you know, there was so much. I mean, he expected it, but was surprised that there was so much kind of, you know, bounce back from our book club and from just discussions with American women about foot binding. Mm-hmm. Now, you talk about parental love, and yes, definitely, central theme was definitely her grandmother and mother, but I want you to talk a little bit now about her dad and the men in the book. I thought, we thought, you know, her father was definitely someone who was very progressive and very, maybe ahead of his time and allowed Peony to really be involved intellectually and culturally in things that women were not necessarily always involved with at that time. Right, well, that was historically accurate for that time. There, this was an interesting period, you know, when the Manchus had invaded from the north, and there was about 30 years of turmoil. And in that 30 years, there were many men who suddenly had a very different idea about women. They felt that women should be educated. They felt that they should be able to go out. And in fact, there were more women writers at that time who were being published than all together in the rest of the world at that time. Which is incredible. Who knew that? That's just extraordinary. But there were also women artists, women historians, women adventurers, women um, who made their living doing like horseback exhibitions Mm -hmm. and were archers. And they, they went out and they did these extraordinary things, but only for 30 years. But they would not have been able to do that if there hadn't been men who supported them, who not supported them financially, but supported what they were doing. Right. And said, we want to know what you're thinking. We want to know um, how 
you know, wanted to read what these women wrote. And in fact, the only way and the only reason that we have what they wrote still today is because it was men who collected what they wrote, what women mm-hmm. wrote. They collected it, they preserved it, they published it, and that's why we have it still 300 years later. Amazing. So Peony's father, he's he's very much a man of his times. Yes, there were plenty of men who were much more conservative, and eventually they did win out in this kind of during this turbulent period after 30 years, you know, people did go back to the old way. But but Peony's father is very much a product of his time and, and is progressive, as you said. To me, one of the interesting things in the novel is that Peony, actually with her mother and her father, she sees them one way in the beginning. And her relationship and her understanding for both her mother and her father changes in the course of the book. I mean, there is that period where you just think, oh, her father is just a jerk. Right. You know, he's right. really failed her in yeah. so many ways, and yet that isn't what happened at all. And I guess I, I, when I think about that, you know, that to me that isn't something that's particularly Chinese or something that's from 300 years ago. I think many of us go through those stages ourselves, in right? Life, where we think we under, you know, that we adore our parents when we're really young, and then we kind of hit our teen years, and they're not so great, mm-hmm. and we think they don't know anything, and then later, you know, you kind of come back around, and you can appreciate them, and you can understand them, and maybe you're finally willing to learn about who they were and where they came from and about their lives, because when we're young, we don't often... Our parents don't often volunteer much, but we also don't ask very much. Very, very true. Very true. And, you know, just in conversations, I thought what you mentioned about the whole afterlife and really understanding death, I think just as a culture, as a group, as humans, by understanding death, I think we can understand how we would want to live more. I'm curious that as someone who spent a lot of time writing about the afterlife and how Peony, you know, evolves through it and really discovers her humanity, did it affect or change your own way how you want to live your life? Well, I don't know that it's changed how I want to live my life, but I have thought about the what happens after I die. Mm. You know, maybe it hasn't changed exactly how I view that, but it has made me think about how I hope it would be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because again, like as you said earlier, you know, we no one's come back to tell us what it's actually like. And so I do think that there are some aspects of the Chinese afterlife that are really wonderful. And mm-hmm. as I said earlier, you know, that idea that you would go there with your emotions and with all of the, you know, love for the people that you left behind, that that would remain with you, that you would carry that with you. That, to me, would be very, very important. Absolutely. It's kind of like that last line in Ghost. You know, in the movie Ghost, where Patrick Swayze is kind of moving on to the next level, he talks about how it's really the love you take with you. And I think that's such an important thing. No matter what culture you come from, I think kind of, you know, respecting that and understanding that kind of makes you help 
cherish the things that you that are long lasting that you take with you um lifetime to lifetime now this is a very different book than snowflower and the secret fan how what was it like in writing it what was your mindset how was it different in writing peony in love well, first of all, I think Peony and Love is a much more complicated and complex story, mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of ways. So it, wa- it was difficult to write. And one of the reasons is that it's actually based on a true story. Mm-hmm. So that means that I was kind of stuck with a lot of the things that actually happened mm-hmm. in real life. Um, and, and their beliefs, you know, the three wives, they wrote down so much and any time in the book where you see the three wives writing in the margins those are their actual words written 300 years ago Mm. Um, but there are other things like there there are three fires peony's mother burns her books then there's the first fire that destroys the first of the commentaries and then Mm. there's that last fire that happens when um the third wife and Wu Ren are out dancing in the snow and the candle tips over. Mm -hmm. All three of those fires were very well documented. Now, as a writer writing a novel, one fire is enough. Mm -hmm. Two fires is a problem. Mm -hmm. Three fires, that's just a migraine. (laughs) How am I going to do that? But here's the thing. real It's true what they say. Real life is stranger than fiction. Sure. It is. And I also had to take these beliefs um, that these actual living people had and try to make them believable to our time, to our culture. Mm. So, for example, they really believed that they were visiting each other in their dreams. Mm-hmm. That these weren't just dreams. That these were actual moments when you could talk to someone who had died, where you could meet your husband, where you you know, and have a conversation where you could actually share dreams. Well, that's very, very. I mean, I don't think anybody believes that today, but they did believe it in that time, in that place. Mm-hmm. So to try to take those things and make them believable, and I hope I did. Mm-hmm. at least for them, within the context of the story. That, to me, was a big challenge. Oh, I can imagine. And so w- knowing how much research and everything went into it, would you be up for writing another historical fiction based on parts of reality again? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I think the book that I'm working on now is, is historical fiction, and the next one will be as well. I know what that's going to be. So... You know, I I have two chapters left to write in Shanghai Girls, which is the new book, right. and um, it's not based on any one or two people, but it I have used so many oral histories from people who lived through that time um, and done so much research, so that again it's as accurate as possible to that time. What I hope for people is that they'll come to my books the way that I go to books, the way that I read books, which is, and what I love about books is when you open them up and you can step through those pages into another time, into another culture, and have this very different experience. It Mm -hmm. may not be my experience. It may not be what I 
what my belief system is. It may not be, you know, it may not. I certainly don't want to have my feet bound. I mm-hmm. I don't know that I want to be a ghost in the Chinese afterworld. I don't, you know, I didn't with Snowflower and the Secret Fan. I didn't live in a place where women communicated with a secret language. But what I love about stories is when you can just go into that place, that time, and it's like you're in the room with those people. Mm. And you can put aside all of your own sort of preconceptions and just experience life, what life was like for these people in the past. And I think along the way what happens is that you can learn a lot about where we are today. We've talked about that just in you know, in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also where we are in our own hearts, you know, where we are just for ourselves. And it, and sometimes that can open up your mind to think about things in very different ways. And sometimes, you know, I get so much email, people will say, I'm just so happy I didn't live then. Mm-hmm. People write that to me all the time. I'm so happy I didn't live then. But, you know, that makes us appreciate where we are now so much more. Absolutely. And we have a few minutes left. I'm wondering, just really curious as a Eurasian writer, um, what has it meant to you personally to really delve into the land of your ancestors and write about the culture in a way that's really made it accessible to so many Americans and so many people around the globe? Well, I actually... Well, actually, I'll I'll say this. I I did a program not too long ago in Santa Barbara where I was interviewed by a a scholar who asked me, why is it that there are so many Chinese writers in China whose books are translated here, but they just don't sell, they don't translate? Well, somehow people can't really read them. They they aren't embraced. Mm -hmm. And I really do think that it's because of my Chinese-American background that I am able to write these stories because I do have very much an American perspective, Mm -hmm. but I also, like you, know a lot about these Chinese traditions. Mm -hmm. And... I think the questions that I have for things that I don't understand or that I might think are a little strange or or even bothersome like foot binding, mm-hmm. I can take my American perspective but also my Chinese knowledge and blend those two. So that in a, I feel like this mixture that I have in me mm-hmm. allows me to be a kind of a bridge between the two cultures. And how have you been received in the Chinese community? Have you traveled to China, uh, you know, in your research, et cetera? What has the reaction been to the ch- from the Chinese audience? Well, of course, your listeners can't see me, so they don't know that I have red hair and freckles. So right. Chinese <laughs> at all. But we've so sent that out in our in, email. You know, so. whether I'm in chi- Los Angeles, Chinatown, or whether I'm in China, no matter what, and even though those places seem like home to me and I understand so much about them because of how I look, I'll never be completely accepted. Right. Uh, at the same time, sometimes when I'm traveling around the country on book tour, for example, I look like I belong and sometimes I, I don't get it or I feel kind of excluded. Even though I look like I belong and I should understand it completely, I don't always. And so for me, with writing these books, 
and this is just a kind of a personal journey that I'm on, is where do I fit in? You know, how do I fit in? Do I fit in here? Do I fit in there? Do I fit in anywhere? Do I fit in nowhere? I'm not unique in that. We all experience that. We all live through that. Those are the questions all of us are asking ourselves all the time, no matter where we're from, no matter what our backgrounds are. It's just my questions have to do, you know, with my own experience. So I think what happens then when I'm in China or, you know, people, first of all, I just have to say people are so helpful Mm -hmm. and so open. It's not at all what you would imagine, you know, going to a communist country. Uh, People go out of their way to help me. I mean, really go out of their way to help me and, and, again, are just so extraordinarily open. I think partly because after they're with me for a while, they see, okay, she doesn't, you know, her her face doesn't match what's inside of her. What's inside of her actually matters more than those freckles and that crazy red hair. There you go. And that is perfect. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for being our very first guest. Well, you are a delight. The book is wonderful. Well, thank you. The book is Peony in Love, and for more information on the book, you can go directly to Lisa's website at www.lisac.com. Thanks, everybody, and tune in for our next show coming in soon. Have a wonderful evening.